there's a few areas which haven't received a lot of media attention, which I think we should we should highlight because a number of Insight people, including myself and my research team, are all working on them. And, and that's the use of mathematical and statistical models to help us predict what's going to happen in the future with COVID. And they're the foundational tools that everybody across the world is using to answer all the important questions. What's going to happen in the next week? What's going to happen if we start vaccinating people? What if we separate different age groups? What if we try a zero COVID strategy? What's going to happen then? All, all of those interesting questions can only really be answered if we have models. The unfortunate thing is those models rely on having good data to input into them. And the data, as we know, it's got better over time, but it started out really, really bad. I mean, we know that the case numbers from the first wave are, are very poor. They're all underestimated. We know that we miss half the cases, at least due to asymptomatic people. We know that there's this amalgamation problem with collecting together data and reporting on a particular day. We absolutely positively have to have good data if we want to make predictions. But if we have good data and we have good models, then we can really start to do wonderful things which are incredibly useful from a, from a population public health perspective. I thought I'd tell you a little bit about the, the basic models that are used. What they do is they put people into buckets. So you can imagine piling up the population of Ireland and separating them into three different buckets. Simplest model, the buckets are usually labelled S, I and R. So S is for susceptible, people who haven't had the disease yet. I is for the people who are infected. And R is for the people who are removed. And that's a kind of a, an odd term, but it's a mixture of those people who have recovered and also who have died from the disease as well. And you can imagine putting everybody in the country into one of those three buckets. So at the moment, still, even after all we've gone through, most people are in that S bucket. They're in the susceptible bucket. Over time, at a certain time point, people will move from the susceptible to the infected bucket. Some of the infected people will infect people in the susceptible bu bucket as well, and they'll move across. And then eventually the people move from that infected bucket to the R bucket. And that's all that happens in these models. You can make them way more complicated. And the clever bits of maths that happen are how you choose which people move from the S bucket to the I bucket and from the I bucket to the R bucket, how long they spend in each bucket. And you can start to make things sort of a bit more, more clear. If you think about like the R number is related to how people move from the susceptible to the infectious bucket. So those models, they're called SIR models, unsurprisingly, are the foundation for what everybody is using all over the world. And then you can start to make them richer. So for example, if you're thinking about reinfection, that involves moving some of the people from the removed bucket back to the susceptible bucket so they can get it again, so they can go around in circles. If you think about vaccination, that's moving some of the people who are in the susceptible bucket into the recovered bucket. So all you're doing is just moving people around and playing with the clever maths for, for how, these, how these things work. And then what we've tried to do in my research group is use those types of models to then simulate what could happen in the future. So one of the first ones we built, which was back in sort of May or June, is we just thought, well, look, we know roughly how many people are in each of the each of the different buckets. We know roughly what we think the R number is at that particular point. We know roughly how long they're going to spend expend in each infectious stage. So if we just play that out, like how long is the virus around for before it actually goes extinct? And that was when we hit along the sort of major problem with all of these models as well. It's not just the data, and that's also just uncertainty, uncertainty in everything. Not only the fact that we don't actually know exactly what the data is, but you don't know exactly what the R number is. You don't know exactly how long people are going to spend infected. 
And then you can start to play with the model by repeatedly rerunning it, the different values. These are, these are my possible R numbers. These are my possible number of cases at the moment. And you, you just rerun and rerun and rerun the model. It's got a fancy term in statistics. It's called Monte Carlo. And that gives you like a, a probability distribution of all the lengths of time it might take for the whole virus to go extinct. And that's when you, you start to get quite depressed because then you realise, well, actually, look, it might only last, say, six months to seven months, or it could be with us for three to four to five years uh, before it actually, actually goes out there. Now, over time, you're able to refine things. And as more people have gone through the system, we can, we can start to narrow down that, those ranges. So we first did that back in May and June and saw that our, our best guess was that it would be around for two to three years. That was before a vaccination came on board and with various tweaks as to, as to how uncertain we were about some of the parameters. And over time, all we've done is, is try to expand that out. So we've, we've changed it now. So we have a vaccination model whereby you say how often people move from the, from the susceptible to the removed. And you can, you can kind of simulate what will happen under a vaccination. And then you can include clever things. So you can include the fact that the vaccination isn't 100% effective. You can include the fact that some proportion of the population are likely to refuse to get vaccinated. And then you, then you can start to work out again how long this is likely to last. And that's when things start to get much, much, much shorter. If you can really vaccinate effectively a large number of the population and people agree to be vaccinated, then you really can start to bring the bring things down towards kind of this summer. But with vaccination delays and all the other issues, multiple vaccines going out there, those are things we haven't incorporated into our model yet. But anyone can go online. They can. It's just a load of slidey bars on our website, can put in their best values and see what, it, what plays out in terms of the, the pandemic in the future. And how do you foresee these these models being used in in a, in a policy making space, for example? Well, I, I see them very as, as being useful in in kind of what if analysis. What if we separated the over sixty fives and the under sixty fives into different buckets? How would that play out? You can you can do things which you possibly can't do sort of politically. I mean, we know that zero COVID is a really hard challenge politically. But what if we reduce the R numbers? Right, right, right down. What would actually happen then? What what if sort of we got lots of cross infections? People just all of a sudden magically appear from the susceptible bucket into the infected bucket. It's a really useful what if policy tool for all kinds of things. I mean, and this is what the NFET are doing in the background and all of the other sort of agencies. All we've tried to do is, is make it a little bit more accessible for kind of everyday people. So they don't have to worry about what the actual maths is in the background. They can just choose some figures and click run. And you mentioned that this this SIR model is being used all across the world. And presumably there are certain areas where the data sets would be more complete. So do you tend to draw off more complete data models or are you drawing only off the Irish data set or how does that work? Yeah, so we've got it set up so you can put in any population size you like and any starting values in the susceptible bucket. So in theory, you can do this for any country. Different countries have different ways they set up the models. Some countries have fancier models than, than our simple kind of SIR approaches. We've tried to keep things very, very basic. Um, so you, you can more or less do any country, but our focus has been for Ireland. I mean, we were given money by Science Foundation Ireland to do this. So we've all the default values we've got set up there are for Ireland. Comparing between countries in these models, as we all know, like comparing between countries in anything to do with these data sets is a real challenge because people measure things differently, how different countries count um, sort of infections, how they report it. Some countries have kind of these weekend delays and things like that. And so we've focused on just looking at Ireland and trying to get best figures for Ireland. We've, we tried to do it for the north as well, but that's proved a real challenge. We tried to do some stuff geographically as well, looking at geographic spread. 
But again, we kind of come up to data limitations now. It's very hard to get data below a county level. And in Northern Ireland, they produce the, the data in a slightly different format. It doesn't match. So we've just kind of we've just kind of stuck with Ireland. Where is the app um, available? How do people access it? Yeah, so there, everything is available on hamilton.ie slash COVID-19. So if you go to that website, www.hamilton.ie slash COVID-19, and then there's, there's we have like a main dashboard, which also updates. And then we have a number of these apps, including the vaccination planning one, the access mortality one and a few others in there which I forget what they are now. It seems as though more should be made of these models in terms of just what you've just done now explaining them to people how they work the shortcomings as well as you know the advantages of using this yeah it feels like we're kind of missing a trick in that regard in public communication. Maybe I mean I mean there's there's layers of bureaucracy here I mean there's the Irish Epidemiological Modelling Advisory Group on which there's a number of Insight members who work on that, and they do the fancier SIR modelling. Um, we would give a lot of our... If we if we find something really interesting or we create a new app like the Excess Mortality one, I would straight away be sending it to them. They then That then gets given to Neffet, and then Neffet makes some decisions somewhere, and, and so the scientific information here is very much diluted. I did see at the start of January, we now have Mark Ferguson, head of SFI, government's chief scientific advisor, finally on, on Neffet as well. So hopefully more of this kind of modelling information will be shared. But I totally agree. I, I haven't seen anybody exactly try to explain to the public what an SIR model is, how it works and why it's a useful tool to, to predict what's actually happening. And I think it's it's not that difficult to explain. I'm not about to write out the maths for anybody, but it's it's the, the tools and the, the details of it are quite straightforward in mm. the main. And in in a separate but related area of research, you have been looking specifically at data generated by the CSO and RIP.ie, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Uh, there's been a few different groups who have looked at RIP.ie data. I think Barry Smith last week you had on uh, was one of the one of the first people to do so as well. The thing to say, the big advantage about the RIP data is it, it's actual posts that people are putting up. It's not kind of statistics that are being reported, which might suffer from kind of weird delays. There are still problems with it. I mean, Ireland is one of the few countries in the EU which doesn't record excess mortality. And if you go to the Eurostat website, you can see excess mortality in, in almost all of the different countries. But you, we don't have that for Ireland. So we wanted to do something that would closely approximate that. So what we've done is is we've scraped the data for the last five years from RIP.ie, and then we've been looking since the pandemic began how many posts we've had in a particular, say, 28-day window, and comparing that with the previous five years. Almost everywhere throughout the initial wave, we were way, we were 45, 50% higher than you'd normally expect. It was it was out of the flu season, and we, we were obviously getting a huge number of deaths, which we, we wouldn't have expected otherwise. The second wave was much flatter. We really we saw a little five to ten percent rise in, in excess mortality. The third wave is still going up. As I said, during the first wave we hit around 40 to 45 percent. This wave, I think I looked today on our app, and it was at about 30 to 35 percent, I think. It's not quite reached the peak yet. It's very hard to tell. What we've done is is we've kind of we've tried to standardize the approach to the way people calculate excess mortality, and then we've set it up as an automatic scraping script, which would be bog standard, I guess, to most of the people who listen to Insight. This is this has been done with some help from collaborators from UCC, collaborators from Brazil as well. So now every day our app automatically updates itself with all of the latest data and shows the latest figure. It's the only real-time excess mortality app I know in Ireland. It's the only honest way I think we have of actually working out how severe the different waves have been in comparison to each other. Mm-hmm. 